you got a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, let's, we'll pick up in verse 5 and we'll read down through verse 13. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, Jesus, in what's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward, sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This morning we start a new series of messages entitled, Teach Us to Pray. See, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus' disciples find him in prayer and they come to Jesus afterwards saying, teach us to pray. And in Luke chapter 11, on the very heels of that request by Jesus' disciples, Jesus teaches them how to pray in what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer or the Model Prayer. And that prayer that you find in Luke 11 on the heels of the disciples' request is the same one that you find here in Matthew chapter 6. And that's what we plan to spend the next six weeks in, right? Six weeks in Matthew 6. It's pretty good. You like that? Learning how to pray. Because Jesus teaches us how to pray. And who better to teach us, right, than Jesus himself? There's no one more qualified to teach us how to pray than our Lord, right? Jesus was one with the Father from eternity past and has always shared an intimate, personal relationship with the Father. Jesus in his earthly ministry was always drawing away into secluded places to pray and for times of solitude, right? He would leave public ministry even at very pivotal junctures and he would go away into very isolated, quiet, silent places and he would pour his heart out before his Father. He was always drawing away for extended times of prayer. He did more than just like little popcorn prayers and parking lot prayers and pre-test prayers, right? But he was drawing away for extended seasons of prayer. Jesus prayed also through the full gambit of human emotions and experiences, Right? Jesus prayed on the, on, on the threshold of choosing his disciples and calling the apostles right? for wisdom to make decisions about how to sort out those whom he would call and invite into this very public ministry alongside of him. Jesus prayed through his decision making. He also prayed with thanksgiving. Right? There was constant rejoicing in his prayers as he rejoiced over the Father. And he rejoiced in all that he was doing. He prayed through his suffering. You see it in Gethsemane. As he's there before the cross. And before he moves towards the cross. He cries out before the Father. With sweating drops of blood. And even as he hangs on the cross. He cries out to his Father in prayer. He prays through the full gamut of human emotion. There was no human experience that he faced. In which he did not live in dependence upon the Father. In addition, Jesus lives today and he intercedes for us at the Father's right hand. So who better to teach us to pray than Jesus himself? 
And listen, church, what better topic to address right now as well? Because if we were to take a very informal poll and I ask you to raise your hands, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because we'd all have to raise our hands and I know the results because I would raise my hand as well. If you took a very informal poll, we would all say that our personal prayer lives are not what they should be. They're just not. Right? Our personal prayer lives are not where they ought to be. Um, if you ask me, Shannon, do you pray too much? I would say no. <laughs> it's not possible. If you ask me, Shannon, do you pray enough? I would say no. Woefully, I do not. Right? You cannot pray too much. And for many of us, if we were honest, we would say we don't pray enough. Right? Our personal prayer lives are not what they ought to be. Martin Luther once said in a uh, conversation with some of his students, he said, I wish I could get you to pray the way my dog goes after meat. <laughs> in other words, with the same kind of hunger, with the same kind of ferocity, with the same kind of desire for fullness, with the same kind of fierce and full hunger that drives a dog to consume a piece of meat, I wish you would pray with that kind of intensity. And yet most of our prayer lives, if we were to be real honest, do not look like a dog going after meat, but like a kid with a plate of vegetables in front of them at dinner, kind of picking through the plate, biding their time until dinner time is over and they can put them in the trash, right? That's what most of our personal prayer lives look like. In addition, our public prayer uh, life doesn't look much different. We've all been in that awkward position, haven't we? Whenever somebody in our life group or somebody in the youth group calls on us to close or open in prayer, and we just, we just kind of shrink back because we're uncomfortable, we don't feel confident enough to pray in public, right, to speak to God in front of other people, or, or there's this situation too, right, whenever the leader just kind of gives an open invitation for anyone who would like to open the meeting in prayer or close the meeting in prayer and everybody just kind of looks around at each other and then they look down at the floor because if I don't make eye contact with them, they won't call on me, right? Because we don't feel confident or comfortable to pray in public. So our personal prayer lives are not what they ought to be. Our public prayer confidence and comfort level is not where it should be. And finally, listen, there's no other reason to do this. It's this. It's because most of us, many of us, I would dare say all of us at some junctures in our lives, we miss out on what God is willing to do in our lives because we do not ask him to do it. We miss out on what God is willing to do because we fail to ask him to do it. And oftentimes it's because we just don't know how to pray. And so we're going to spend the next six weeks looking at the Lord's Prayer. And listen, let me give you a little context. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is not distinguishing between people who do not pray and people who do pray. That's not the line that he's drawing or the division that he's making. Rather, in Matthew 6, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray like Christians rather than like pagans. Right? That's the dividing line that Jesus draws in Matthew chapter 6. You see, even the pagans pray. Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7. He says, even the Gentiles, those in their context who were foreigners to the promises of God, they were not heirs to God's covenant promises. They were not part of God's family. And Jesus says, even those who are separated from God, not under the umbrella of God's family, even they pray. But they do not pray Christian prayers. And the same is true today. Listen, the statistics and the research has held rather consistent over the last decade. Right, over the last decade, this, the, the, all the research studies have found that right around half of all Americans pray with a high degree of frequency. A high degree of frequency. And whenever you lower the degree of frequency, right, you raise the percentage. The percentage rises substantially the number of people who say they pray. 
So whether you pray frequently in amongst those half of all Americans who say they do, or whether it's less frequently, and some statistics and research studies have shown that nearly 80 to 90% of Americans would say, yeah, once a week or once a month, I pray. So most of America is praying, however, and all are praying Christian prayers. <laughs> right? Because this is some of the things they're asking for. Some of this data came out of a Lifeway research study done by the Southern Baptist Convention. Right? And many of them perhaps were in part of Southern Baptist churches. But listen to the things they're praying for. To win the lottery. <laughs> pray to win the lottery. Right? Because I don't have enough bling. I need more stuff, man. Right? I'm going to pray to have success in something that I put no effort into. So I'm going to pray to win the lottery even though I didn't buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> right? Right? I, didn't, I didn't work for this. I didn't train for this. I didn't prepare for this. But I'm going to pray that God would give me success in it. Right? In addition, they pray to, that their secrets would be kept and no one would find out what they've done. In other words, that it would never come to light what I said. It would never come to light what I did. The deceit with which I operated. Or, they, or in, in addition, go, they pray for God to avenge someone who has hurt you or someone that you loved. They call down fire and brimstone on those who have wounded you or betrayed you. Pray for your favorite sports franchise to win a game or a championship or establish a dynasty. Right? Nearly 13% of all Americans are praying for that. <laughs> In addition for a good parking spot, right? 7% of all Americans are praying when they drive into the mall if I can just get rock star parking up close, right? Not to get caught speeding. So you're like, can I get a witness? Success in something they know God that would not please God. In other words, I know this is a violation of God's moral will, but I'm gonna do it in any way and ask God to bless it. Or someone else to fail in what they are attempting. In other words, I have so much bitterness and hatred in my heart toward others. I'm asking, I'm going to pray that they would fail. They would fall on their face. Those are not Christian prayers. Right? Now you may be thinking these pagans or Gentiles are all outside the church, but listen, there are many who fill the stadium seating and pews and plastic chairs that churches meet in every single Sunday. There are people who know some facts about God, but they don't know God as the Bible defines knowledge of Him. Right? These are individuals in churches who have never seen their own folly and turned away from their foolishness and being wise in their own eyes to embrace the wisdom of Jesus. These are people who have never turned from running and ruling their own lives under Jesus' good and gracious rule. They've never turned and given up right, their own merits, all the good things they've done, the good things they are doing, or the good things they have intentions to do in the future to throw themselves upon Jesus' mercy in return from sin to trust in his finished work. So all their work for God, all their work that they're doing is for God's approval and not from it in Christ. They still pray, just not the way Jesus teaches. And so we want to drill down into this prayer for these next six weeks. Now listen, the Lord's Prayer, before we get into it, the Lord's Prayer, to give you a little more context, is often, it's, as it's often referred to, is not a prayer to be recited, but a prayer to be patterned. Right? In other words, it's not a formula like algebra, okay? Where you plug in all these parts of the equation and it spits out an answer. It's not that kind of prayer that Jesus is speaking of here. It's not a formula, but rather it's to be a format for a full prayer life. A full prayer life. Notice Jesus doesn't say, recite this prayer, but when he comes to teach them to pray, he says, pray then like this. 
In other words, pattern your prayers after this. There should be a shape and trajectory of your prayers. It should be patterned after this prayer that includes things like adoration. It includes things like confession. It includes things like petition. So we're asking God for things. Give us this day our daily bread. We're adoring God in prayer. Hallowed be your name. We're confessing our sins. Forgive us our, our sins and our debts as we forgive our debtors. We're interceding for ourselves and for others, for God's provision and protection that he would not lead us into evil, but deliver us from it. Or lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right? All of these things are a part of prayer. And there's a shape to that that Jesus shows us. But he's not saying, listen, the full totality of your prayer life is just reciting these several verses. But you're patterning your prayers after these truths. And that Christian prayer involves all of these things. Each of them. And there are marks that we'll look at through the course of this series. But I want to take a look at one of them this morning. That's all we got time for in the next 27 minutes. We got time for one mark, okay? And listen, it is the one mark upon which all the other prayer is built in this text. All the other types of prayer flow out of this premise. And here it is, church. Like the foundation of prayer is the fatherhood of God. That's what Jesus teaches us. The foundation upon which all your prayer rests All you're asking God for things, it all rests upon this foundation that God is our Father. Look, in verses 5 to 13, Jesus refers to God as Father four times. Twice in verse 6, once in verse 8, and again in verse 9, when he says, Our Father. See, all the types of prayer in this text are built on this premise that God is our Father in heaven, and this is an astonishing truth. It's an astonishing truth. Listen, when Jesus teaches us, listen church, when Jesus teaches us to pray, he doesn't say, come to God and say, our judge, even though he is. And he judges rightly and he judges rightfully. He's the only one who has the rightful place to judge and he judges accurately with perception and discernment. He doesn't say, come to God and pray, our king, even though he rules and reigns over all that he has created. He doesn't say, come to God and pray, our creator, even though he has created all things that exist and brought them into existence out of nothing. He doesn't even say, come to God and pray to God as our friend, even though indeed in Christ he is a friend of sinners. He doesn't say, come to God and pray to God as any of those things. He says, when you pray, pray then like this, our Father. And that is an astonishing astonishing revelation, an astonishing truth, because throughout the Gospels, Jesus almost exclusively refers to God with that term, Father. As a personal, intimate term, Father. As a relational term, not some distant deity or impersonal force, but as one who is near, one who is real, one who is present and one who is active when jesus says to pray he says address god as father and no religion no other religion on the face of the earth has that kind of personal connection and relationship to the god that they worship serve love and adore every other religion has a distant deity or an impersonal force whom they would not dare approach and call Father. And yet Jesus says, with boldness, you go before him saying, Our 
Father. Our Father. Now let's clarify something here for a moment. Right, because Jesus is not saying this. Let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that God is everyone's Father. That is not what he's saying. Now this is not gonna be popular. This might be criticized highly within our culture. I might be called a bigot or a hate monger or someone who's unrefined and backwater and, 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 and prehistoric, right? But Jesus is not saying that God is everyone's father. Jesus is not saying that the fatherhood of God is universal, but it's particular. So let me say it as strongly as I can say it and then back it up from the Bible, right? Let me say it as strongly as I can. You cannot have God as your father unless you have his son as your savior. Let me say it again. You cannot have God as your father if you do not have his son as your savior. Let me give you three texts that support that. Because, listen, it's very popular in our day to think of God as being the universal father of all men and women in some kind of soft and sentimental and hallmarky kind of way, right? Like a greeting card I pick up off the shelf and it's just nice and warm, like a warm blanket I can just wrap myself in that just gives me all kind of squeezy comforts. That's not what Jesus is saying, though. First text, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 where John writes, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In John chapter one, Jesus says the relationship with God, this relationship with God as our father is not on account of our natural birth, but on account of our new birth. Right? It's not on account of all of our actions and accolades and accomplishments, but on account of God's willingness to adopt us into his family, that we're born of him. It's not on account of being created, but becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus. Right? He says it didn't take place because you came out of your, you're not, you're, not, you're not sons and daughters of God or children of God because you came out of your mother's womb, but because God has turned aside his wrath from you by the shedding of his son's blood at the cross and your, his grace extended to you through that and your faith that clings to him. So we're not sons and daughters of God by birth. In fact, we're actually enemies of God by birth. And we're objects or children of wrath as Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, verse three. Second text John chapter 8, verses 42 to 47. Jesus is engaging with the religious leaders of his day and listen to what he says to them. He says, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is because you are not of God. Listen, that is perhaps the most offensive verse in all of the Bible. 
to the most religious people of Jesus' day and time. This is what he says. He says that you who lay claim upon God as your father, you actually have he's your father, the ancient enemy of God, the devil, because you do not love and listen to me, the one whom he has sent. You cannot have God as your father if you do not have his son as your savior. If you do not love Jesus and listen to him, embrace his wisdom, come under his rule, and your heart is not filled with love for him, then you do not have God as your father. Let me throw in a third text just for good measure. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, it says, All things, Jesus says, have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, you don't get to know God as your Father unless the Son reveals him to you. Unless the Son shows off his character and nature before your eyes, then you don't know him as Father. You might know him as judge, you might know him as creator, you might know him as, as some distant deity, but you don't know him as father unless the son reveals him. A couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the role of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Spirit, we said the Spirit's, one of his ministries is to take the floodlight of, 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 and, and illumine Jesus with it. Right? He shines the floodlight on Jesus so that you see the beauty and majesty and glory of Christ. And as he does that, then what Christ is then showing forth to you is the character and nature of the Father. You see it in the Son, and without the Son, you don't see it. You can't see it unless the Son reveals it. You cannot have God as your Father unless you have his Son as your Savior. But listen, for those who do have his Son as their Savior, they're able to know this great judge, this great king, this great creator as their father. As one who is intimate and close and personal. They've been adopted into his family. And Paul says it this way in two places in his writings. In Romans chapter 8 verse 15, he says, For you do not, speaking of those who, have, who know the Son as their Savior, says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. A little Aramaic word, Abba, could probably properly translated into English as Papa. Probably the first word that rolled off of an infant's mouth because it was so easy to say Abba, Abba. Right, and it came frequently. And Jesus says, that's the spirit that you have abiding with you. If you know, if you know the Son is your Savior, then the spirit, is come, the spirit of adoption is moved into your hearts to persuade you that indeed you are this child of God so that you would cry out to him, Papa, Daddy, our Father. And that, church, is the foundation of all prayer. Of all prayer. Now, some of you right now, you're thinking, well, listen, that is a hard concept for me because you don't know my dad. You don't know my earthly father. And he is so, like, I get choked up. Some of you may be feeling this. I get choked up even to think of God as my father because my earthly father abandoned or abused me. My earthly father was distant and cold. How can this heavenly father be near and warm towards me? 
How can his heart be for me and not against me? All I felt was the back of my father's hand, not the tenderness of his touch. And listen, if that's you this morning, I want to say this to you. Like the distance between the best earthly father and the worst earthly father may be the distance from the front of the stage to that back wall. Or maybe from the front of this room to the back of the room. Maybe the span of this building. That may be the distance between the best earthly father you could possibly fathom in your imagination and the worst earthly father that you could possibly experience. But listen, let me tell you this. The distance between the best earthly father and our father in heaven is the distance between the seat that you're seated in right now and Perth, Australia, which is almost exactly the other side of the globe from here. The exact spot is somewhere out in the Indian Ocean, right, to the west of Australia. But Perth is as close as we're going to get as a landmark. That's the distance between the best earthly father and your heavenly father. R.C. Sproul said it this way. As he, when he, he said, when I talk to someone who's having difficulty using the word father and wants to choke on it when he refers to God, I usually advise him that as hard as it may be to focus on the word that comes before it. Listen, this is beautiful. Our. Our father. He says, because our father is not his or her father. It is not Our Father is not the Father who violated us. It's our Father in heaven. Our Father who has no abuse in Him, who will never violate anyone. We all need to learn to use this phrase and transfer to God the positive attributes that we so earnestly desire and so seriously miss in our earthly fathers. Because the distance between the best one and Him is the other side of the globe. That's how massive of a distance that exists between the best earthly father and our father in heaven. Our father on earth may have been distant, reluctant, and inattentive, but our father in heaven is near, willing, and attentive. He is perfect, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven. He is personal because he knows what we need before we even ask him for it. That's how integrated he is into our lives and how personally attentive he is to our needs. That before they ever roll off our tongue, he knows but he's also perfect in another sense because he knows exactly what to give before you even ask for it. He knows exactly what you need even though it may not be what you want. That's how good of a father he is. That's the foundation, church, of all... We gotta move. I got much more to say, but we gotta keep going. That's the foundation of all prayer. And if God is our father, then listen, if you're gonna pray, you're gonna learn to pray, the first movement you've got to make is learn to come to him as a child. You've got to come to him as a child. All right? If we see God as our father, we must also see ourselves as his children. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says that the only people who get into the kingdom of God, the only people who experience the tender, fatherly compassion of God are those who enter as children. Now listen, there's several things that strike me about children. Let me give you some of them and how they are... apply to our prayer lives first right children are honest they're honest right sometimes to a fault at least young children (laughs) they're honest to a fault listen young children they have no pretense they love to pretend but they have no pretense right Right? they're all they have massive imaginations but they have no self-consciousness right 
Right? They're not worried about what other people think about them. They're not worried about how they can position themselves in a relationship. They're not worried about how to gain like, like reward or merit in somebody's eyes by the way they perform. They're not worried about that. Young children have no pretense in them whatsoever, and they are honest to a fault, sometimes to an offense. Right? Out of the mouth of babes okay, comes straight-up truth, even when it hurts. Right? I have to look at my children sometimes and say, listen, you said to me it's true, but that hurt my feelings. Don't say that again. Right? Because that's just how they operate. Right? They are, they are honest at times to a fault. And listen, church. God, God wants the real you. He wants the honest you in prayer. It's a part of what it is to come to Him as a child. To lay aside all your pretense, to lay aside all your, your kind of positioning in his eyes, to lay aside all of that and come to him with the rawness, come to him with in, in, in humility, come to him with, with uh, your messiness, your struggle, your hurts, your frustrations, your failures, right? God doesn't, God's not looking for the cleaned up version of yourself to come to him in prayer. He's not looking for the fixed up version of yourself to come to him in prayer. He's not looking for the dressed up or made up version of yourself to come before him in prayer. Right? Some of you will not go out in public before you stop by that full length mirror and position everything appropriately. Every hair, every article of clothing. Right? You're just, you're, because we have that degree of self-consciousness. We wonder what people think about us. But God says to come to me as a father means you come as a child without pretense. Without performance. And for some of you, that is the word you need to hear this morning. That God has brought you here to say that if you're going to have an intimate prayer life with God, that you've got to learn to come to Him as a child, not performing for Him as a character on a stage. God is not looking for a performance from you. Do you know that? In fact, He says that characterizes pagan prayer earlier up in the text when He says the hypocrites pray that way. They go stand out in the street corners and they pray these long, eloquent, verbose, like, yeah, there you go, right? That's many words, right? All kinds of words just heaped up on top of each other, right? Thinking that they're going to be recognized and seen for how eloquent and how well they perform with their prayers. He says, do not pray like that. He says, do not pray as if it's a performance. And church, that means that some of you need to shed off all the preconceived notions you have of prayer, of thinking that somehow you have to impress God with how well and eloquently you pray. Right? God is not looking for precise vocabulary and four-syllable words whenever you come before Him in prayer to impress Him. Right? He's looking for the genuine cry of your heart. That's what He's looking for. Right? You're, some, some of us think that in order to, to uh, please God in our prayers, we've got to use words that are only found in Bible dictionaries written in the 1700s. Right? That's the only thing God understands is King James English. <laughs> right? We've got to use all these big, long words. But what God is looking for is just simple, heartfelt acknowledgement of, our, of, of an honesty of where we are. Do you know that? He's not looking for your performance. Now, some of you on the flip side, right, we talk about walking the talk all the time. Some of us may need to learn to talk the walk a little bit, right? So we actually have some vocabulary to pray with, 
right? Because listen, vocabulary is not a, it doesn't, doesn't impress God, but also, here's, one of the, here's, here's what vocabulary does for you in your prayer life. It gives you the ability to more clearly express what you feel in your heart before him. It doesn't impress him, but it allows you to clarify what's going on inside. So children are honest. We could talk about that for a long time. Second of all, children are helpless. You know that? Some of you are like, yes, painfully aware of that reality. Right? We bring a home, child home from the hospital, right? What do they do? Whenever they get hungry, they cry. What do they do when they're wet? They cry. They scream at the top of their lungs. What do they do whenever they're tired? They cry. What do they do whenever they're dirty? They cry. What do they do when they're hurting? They cry. Right? And whenever they, when they, when they move past the crying stage, what do they do when they're hungry? They whine. What do they do when they're tired? They whine. What do they do? You with me? Yeah. Right? Because they're helpless. They're helpless. And so they petition constantly. They're so needy, right? I gotta put food on their plate all the time or they don't eat whenever they're young. And Jesus says, come as a child. The way you know God's fatherliness is if you experience your childlikeness before him in all of your need and helplessness. See, one of the greatest barriers to prayer in your life is a refusal to acknowledge that you are not an all-star, that you're not a rock star, that you're not a shooting star, right? The movie Shrek ruined us. That you're none of those things, but you're a helpless, dependent, so needy before God, right? Refusal to acknowledge that will will diffuse your prayer life quicker than most anything. And listen, church, here's, here's part of the other side of the flip side of that coin. The hard side of that coin is this, is if you refuse to acknowledge your helplessness, God will help you see your helplessness. If you are his child, he will help you see your dependence. He will lay a burden on you that you cannot bear alone. Listen, anytime somebody comes along and says, listen, God's not gonna give you more than you can bear. You say, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Because that is not true. Listen, if he's not gonna lay upon you more than you can bear, but if he's only gonna give you what you're able to rise up under and handle in your own strength and sufficiency, then you wouldn't need him. And there are times in which he will lay burdens on you that you cannot bear. There are times in which you will lose things in your life that you thought you had to have to survive and he will show you your helplessness. He will take you through trials that will sweep your legs out from under you and you will fall flat on your back until you're looking up and he says, are you ready for me now? You may lose a job. You may lose a spouse. You might have a, receive a diagnosis. You may have people that you trusted betray you. There'd be all kinds of things that God could take you through to leg sweep you so that you're laying on your back looking up saying, I need you. Coming to him in dependence as a child. You will never experience the fatherhood of God if you come with your hands full, church. You will only experience him as your father if you come with your hands empty. We gotta move on. Third, children are also trusting. They're trusting. 
Listen, you will never know the fatherhood of God if you refuse to believe that he knows what you need before you ask and you trust that he will give you what you need even if it's not what you want. Matthew chapter 7, a little further down in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks for, a, for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? See, church, do you trust that God knows what you need and that he has the will and the wealth and the wisdom to give it to you? See, my kids come to me with a request all the time, right? I'm sure yours do as well or did, right? But one of the things they know, well, I, I wonder if they know it sometimes because the way they ask and keep asking, I just, it makes my mind, blows my mind a little bit, that I am limited. <laughs> I'm limited in resources. I'm limited in wisdom, I'm limited at times in my will, right? Because they will ask and ask and ask and ask. And just to be honest, sometimes, like, I want to do what is best for my kids. But sometimes I'm tired of hearing them whine and ask. But God is always willing to have us come to Him. Do you believe that He is willing to bless? Do you believe that He has the wealth to bless you? And do you believe that he has the wisdom to know when to withhold and when to give? Do you trust that before him? Will you believe that he is also powerful and sovereign over all things? See, Jesus says, our Father in heaven. He's no tribal deity who has limited power and limited resources. But he has the wealth of all the universe at his disposal. And he's willing to bless. Do you trust him? So you will never know the fatherhood of God in your life. Experience it intimately. Unless you come to God as a child, you come to him as one who is helpless, one who is trusting, and one who is honest. So let me close with this. What do we do with all this? Here it is. You and I have to train ourselves to pray because it doesn't come naturally to us. We have to train ourselves to pray, church. Let me tell you what I mean by that. See, so often times in our lives, this is true, isn't it? That what you want, you don't get by acting directly on what you want, by act, but by acting on something else. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Any of you have ever played a sport, you know this to be true, right? Right, as you, as I, I grew up playing baseball, and so whenever I got taught, when somebody, I got taught, that's uh, my Louisiana education coming out. When somebody taught me how to hit, right, they taught me the mechanics of the swing. They didn't say, go up there and swing away, right? right? If, they, if they'd say, go up there and swing away, I might have figured some things out on my own, but I would, my, my swing would have been slow. I never would have caught up to the fastballs if they got faster and faster and faster, right? Because whenever they taught me how to hit, they taught me the proper mechanics, right? And so in the swing, you a small stride, and then what you do with your back foot, you squish the bug, huh? That's what you do. You squish the bug, right? You just kind of turn your back foot this way. And in so doing, you're squishing the bug because it opens up your hips, right? And then you don't just kind of throw your bat way out here, but you want to throw your hands and the barrel at the ball, right? So you throw, you, 
See that? All that works together. So, right? Boom, boom, and throw them at the ball, okay? And so that's how you swing. But listen, what we did in order to learn those mechanics to develop that muscle memory is we got in the cage day after day after day through soft toss and hitting off of tees and through batting practice. We would squish the bug, open the hips, throw the hands and barrel at the ball, okay? Keeping the eyes on the ball the whole time, not pulling our head out, okay? All these mechanics, we were working to develop that muscle memory, And then when we stepped into the batter's box in competition, we were able to perform without even thinking about it, right? Because you get where you want to get, not by just going up and just swinging away and cutting, but by working on things that at the time, kind of like the karate kid, right? You're like, I have no idea how painting the fence is going to make me fight in the arena, right? But But that's the reality of life. That oftentimes we get where we want to get not by acting on that thing directly but by acting on something else that gets us there. And here's how you have to train yourself to pray. You have to think true thoughts about God and about yourself. You don't need to go out of here going, I'm going to make this massive commitment. I'm going to pray every day for two hours for the next six weeks. But what you have to learn to do is to replace the lies that you believed about God and yourself with truths. And think true thoughts about God and true thoughts about yourself. So that you, as you develop this, this, mm, you develop this, this passion and this heart for God. As you're thinking of Him as a Father who is good and gracious. That will not turn you aside. That is attentive to your needs. That is near to you in your sufferings. As you're flooding your heart and flooding your mind with those truths. It's awakening within you a desire and a passion to get on your knees in prayer because you're relating to a person, a father and not a force who is somewhere out there. And you're replacing the lies that you have believed about God with truths. You're squishing the bug. All right? You're opening the hips. You're throwing your hands and barrel at the ball and keeping your eyes down. You're developing muscle memory as you train yourself by replacing truths, lies with truths, and thinking true thoughts about God and about yourself. Because the one thing, church, listen, that will stimulate or stifle your prayer life more than anything else is how you see God and how you see yourself in relationship to Him. That will either stimulate your prayer life or it will stifle it. It will do one of the two. So you need to saturate your mind and your heart with truths about who God is and who you are. Let me give you two of them and we're done. In John chapter 17, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, I want you to listen to how he prays for his disciples and all those who would come to know the Father through their ministry as well. At the very end of Jesus' prayer, in John chapter 17, verses 25 and 26, he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you that, uh, uh, I'm sorry, and these know that you have sent me. And then verse 26, listen to what he says. I made known to them your name, And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Think about that for a moment, church. The love with which you have loved me 
the passion with which the Father has loved the Son from all of eternity might be in His children. They might experience it and know it and feel the rush of it come over their lives. The enduring, eternal, steadfast love of the Father for the Son would be present in us as His kids, as His sons, as His daughters. So that whenever we get to heaven one day and we stand before God, God's not going to look at us and say, I love you, my child. But that Jesus, boy, I really love him. No. Because the same love with which the Father has loved the Son, he has loved his children. And Jesus asked, would you make them experience that and know that by it being in them, Father? That's my heart's plea and petition that he would taste of it. That is your father who loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever unfading love. And you are his child. In fact, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, see what kind of love the father has for us is given to us, lavished, shed abroad, the Greek word says, for us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. One of the ways that you can saturate yourself with this is by singing these truths. And that's what we're gonna do. The band's gonna come and they're gonna lead us in song. We're gonna sing of a great, deep, abiding love for the Father and how good and gracious he is in our lives. And some of you need to take the truths, the, the deep truths of these songs and allow them to embed in your hearts. You know what? One, one of the purposes of music in the church is this, is to take theology and put it to melody that it might be secure in our memory. Right? So we're taking these truths to song, which then it just gets catchy, doesn't it? And then it just embeds in our memory. And so we chew on it and we think on it. And we learn to exchange lies that we believed about God with the truth of who he is and who we are. And then what we find is that as a product of that, right, we hit singles. Sometimes we hit triples because our hearts are stirred to pray. Would you stand with us this morning and would you sing and rejoice in the love of the Father?